This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. So today I'll just be uh, going over the investor's perspective on affordable housing. Um, I have a brief agenda here, which is just providing a bit of background. Um, I'll share a little bit about common investment structures and key business terms and investor risk protections. And then I'll wrap it up with investors' motivations in LIHTC, which is basically why do investors um, invest in low-income housing projects. So I think it's it may be good to just take a step back. I know we've all sort of highlighted um, a lot of these already, but I did just want to touch on what the federal low-income housing tax credit program is. And um, the program subsidizes the acquisition of construction, uh, acquisition, rehabilitation of affordable housing for low and moderate income tenants. Uh, the program was enacted in 1986 um, as part of the Tax Reform Act, and it was made permanent in 1993. Uh, and the IRS sets forth, sets forth rules for the program through Section 42 of the Code, which we've all been referencing throughout the, uh, our presentations. And the administration of the program itself uh, resides within the states. So the way the program works, just to take a step back, is the federal government issues tax credits um, to the to state agencies and local agencies who then award these tax credits to developers like Peter's clients. Um, then you have these developers who want to sell the credits to private investors like my clients. Um, to obtain and to obtain funding. So once the housing project is placed in service, um, the investors can claim the tax credits over a period of 10 years. And like Kurt uh, mentioned earlier, the tax credits are dollar for dollar um, tax reduction and their tax liability. Um, so one note that I'll make is that uh, many states also have their own state tax credit programs, which I know we'll talk a little bit about during the second half of the, of the presentation, um, but that's also important to keep in mind. And like Kurt's been mentioning and Peter has been mentioning, uh, tax credits is a, is a way to uh, fund affordable housing projects, but, but you also have other subsidies. So you have federal subsidies, you have state subsidies, and then you have your construction loans, your permanent loans, and you have additional soft loans that may be provided by other third parties and even affiliates of the owner. Uh, so program requirements. I know Kurt touched a little bit on this, but one of the main requirements of the LIHTC program is that rents must remain affordable for a certain period of time. So projects receiving low-income housing tax credits must meet um, a, an income test. And as you can see here, uh, some of the ways to meet that test is if a project uh, 
if there's 20% of the units are occupied by tenants whose incomes are less than or equal to 50% of AMI, you can meet the project by a 40-60 set aside, a 25-60 set aside, uh, but that only applies to New York City. Or as of uh, 2018, you can meet um, the income set aside where you have 40% of the units occupied by tenants with an income average and no more than 60. Um, and no units can be occupied by tenants with greater than 80% of AMI. So that's just something that uh, owners, investors, and all parties involved uh, need to adhere to uh, during the course of a project. Also, projects receiving LITEX um, must adhere to rent restrictions. I think we've been hearing that throughout the course of the presentations as well, but um, rents cannot exceed 30% of the qualifying income. And the rents can change annually too with, um, with new area medium incomes published usually by HUD. Um, so there's also a 30-year affordability commitment period, a minimum of a 30-year affordability commitment period. Um, so there's the 15, a uh, year tax credit compliance period, and then you have another 15-year extended use period. So the 15-year extended use periods can change from uh, state to state. Some states may require a longer term. And something to keep in mind is that the 30-year um, affordability period can terminate early. For instance, if there's a foreclosure, which we obviously don't want, or by um, a qualified contract process. Um, so applicable for percentage, I know Kurt touched on these, so I won't uh, dive into them a whole lot, but there are two types of credits that you can get in an affordable housing project. You can do, you can get 9% credits and you can get 4% credits. Uh, there are different award processes for both of these. And one thing to know about 9% credits is that these are generally more competitive um, and they apply to new construction pro projects or substantial rehab projects. Um, and these are not financed with tax exempt bonds. Then you have your 4% projects, uh, which apply to new construction and substantial rehab. And these are financed with tax exempt bonds, which is uh, what Kurt was discussing earlier relating to uh, the bonds. Um, there are also different types of documents that are associated with these types of deals. So for instance, in a 9% project, you typically have a tax credit reservation letter and a carryover allocation agreement, which details the project deadline, such as when the owner has to place the project in service and uh, the deadline for meeting uh, a 10% test. Uh, for 4% projects, depending on the state, you also have what we call a 42M letter. Well, you always get a 42M letter, but you also may get a reservation letter. And the 42M letter that Kurt touched on earlier um, is just from the agency issuing the tax credits. And it says that the project is being financed with taxes and bonds, that it satisfies the requirements of the qualified allocation plan, which I'll touch on briefly on the next slide. And it says that the amount of housing tax credits that is to be utilized um, for the project is not more than necessary for the financial feasibility of the project as required by section 42 of the code. So qualified allocation plans. So states must adopt a qualified allocation plans in order to allocate LIHTC, uh, low income housing tax credits. And the qualified allocation plans is something that the developer uh, really analyzes before starting the uh, application process for credits. 
So the qualified allocation, because it helps determine which projects win the credits, basically. So within the qualified allocation plans, states can extend the affordability period that I referenced early, for example, from 50 years to 50 years. So they can make the project affordable for a longer period of time. Um, they can also set aside a portion of credits to projects uh, with certain characteristics. For example, if a project is located in a QCT or if a project is contributing to a concerted revitalization plan. And then I guess states also provide incentives. Um, so they may provide extra points for projects uh, meeting sustainable green energy standards, which is helpful to, to the community in general. So that's, a, that's an incentive um, for developers. Um, and then as mentioned earlier, since 9% projects are, credits are more competitive. Um, I think that the preference is uh, spelled out in this qualified allocation plan, which is particular to, to every state really shapes, um, has a powerful ability to shape uh, how affordable housing is built. And then briefly, just industry participants, we've all been uh, talking about these different actors, but you have Congress involved, you have the IRS, you have the state tax credit agencies, developers, um, property managers, syndicators, uh, you have nonprofits, state and local agencies, uh, HUD, um, tenants and tax professionals. Uh, and this is just kind of a, a refresher. I know Peter shared uh, an org chart earlier, but this is your common project partnership structure. So the developer at the beginning of a deal forms what we call a pass-through entity. So it's usually a limited liability company or a partnership, um, as you can see in this org chart. And the general partner, like we've heard, owns 0.1% uh, interest in the partnership. You have your sponsor, developer, that owns 100% interest in the general partner. That percentage interest may change from transaction to transaction. Um, and then you have your investor that typically owns 99.99% in the uh, partnership. So the investor owns 99.99% um, in order to claim the tax credits like we've heard, um, but they play a passive role um, in receiving in, in the project, so they're not part of the day-to-day the -day management or oversight. That's more of the role of the general partner. So common investment structures, this chart here is, is more focused on the investor. Um, so there are several common investment structures. The first three, direct investment, proprietary investment, and multi-investor investment. These are the most common ones, and I'll touch on those briefly in the next slides. Secondary investment and guaranteed investment, these are uh, a little less common, uh, but secondary investment is basically when you have an investor's interest that is purchased uh, during the 10-year credit period by another entity. And this usually happens within funds. So basically you have an investor uh, during the 10 year credit period that transfers its interest to another entity. There may be a number of reasons why they're trying to get out of the deal. Um, and then you have guaranteed investment, which I understand is no longer uh, popular, but it was very popular um, years and years ago. And this is when certain sponsors guarantee a, a yield or um, against investment risks. But I know there's case law on this, but my understanding is that this is no longer the favorite because it calls into question whether the investor is a partner um, for federal income 
uh, tax purposes. So this is the first um, investment structure that I referenced earlier. And this is where the investor owns the 99.99% in the limited partner, uh, of limited partner interest in the partnership, and there are no third party intermediaries. So this is where, this is the, the chart that you just saw a couple minutes ago. Basically you have your operating partnership, your general partner and the investor owning 99%, 99.99% in the partnership. So I would say that one of the pros of this structure is that the investor has more um, direct control as they're an, a direct investor in the partnership. And in these types of investment structures, there's really no question that the investor is a partner in the partnership for tax purposes, which is what the investor cares about in order to get the tax credits. Um, I would say that one of the cons is that uh, with more control comes more risk. The second one is the proprietary investment. And this is an investment through a fund managed by a syndicator without other investor. And here the investor acts as the general partner of the limited, the investor limited partner and uh, does the bulk of the work. So here the investor still has a lot of control, um, I would say. So the, uh, a con would be more risk. So this third one here is um, an investment through a fund managed by um, a syndicator with other investors. So here you have multiple investors involved. So here's the investment partnership owning 99.99% of interest in the partnership. Then you have a syndicator GP and other investors as well. So here, I would say that one of the pros is that since the risk is more the risk is more spread out among all of the investors. Um, and uh, again, the trade-off for that would be less control. So letter of intent. Um, I know we've been hearing uh, those words a lot during these presentations, but letter of intent is what we call the LOI. And when I first get a deal, the first thing I do is read the LOI. Um, before drafting the partnership agreement, you really need to review and analyze the LOI. It will tell you um, if the project is a rehab, a new construction. It will tell you if the project is a 4% or 9%. It will tell you the number of units in the project, whether the project um, has rental assistance. Uh, it will let you know if, how many loans are coming into the project and the terms of those loans. Um, some of the terms may change from the initial LOI stage, but when you draft the initial partnership agreement, um, the developer is really looking to see that the terms are mirrored in the partnership agreement. So one of the key business terms that are usually negotiated um, in the LOI is um, the guarantees, for example. Uh, what is the general partner guaranteeing and the guarantors guaranteeing? Uh, the cash flow distribution, what we call the waterfall, what Peter touched on earlier, and uh, removal, uh, when can the general partner be removed? When can the investor come out of the deal? And adjusters as well is something that gets heavily negotiated during the LOI stages. Um, okay, so major investment risks. We've been mentioning all these um, risks, so I may, I may just well highlight them. <laughs> so I guess, that from a tax perspective, um, one of the major risks is the recapture of credits. So uh, the IRS has the right to recapture previously allocated credits or future credits if the project does not comply 
with the income test that I referenced a few slides ago or the rent test or other project restrictions during the initial 15-year compliance period. From an operational perspective, the loss of property through foreclosure um, would result in a recapture of, of provided credits or future credits. Construction and lease up, units must be completed and rented to qualifying tenants to receive credits. And finally, a weak or overextended sponsor is also a major investment risk. So key business terms continued. I won't dive into all of these, but these are our terms that as investors council, we really highlight when reviewing loan documents. I know we've talked about recourse and non-recourse loans, but generally speaking, permanent loan documents must include express um, non-recourse provisions. And non-recourse, like Kurt was explaining earlier, is just that the sole recourse to the lender is the collateral, while recourse um, allow the lender to seize the collateral and other assets of the borrower. So the reasons why investors care that uh, permanent loans have to be uh, non-recourse is that um, it can result in adverse tax consequences to the investor, uh, leading to a reallocation of losses and taking away credits from, from the investor, which is um, a, a conversation that could probably take hours. But permanent loan docs, like Kurt was explaining, uh, may include standard exceptions to non-recourse, which includes bad acts, like fraud, misappropriation of funds, et cetera. And we're generally okay with those to the extent that they are reasonable. Um, so another uh, key item that we highlight when reviewing loan documents was the removal of the general partner by the investor. Uh, so ideally, the permanent loan documents should permit the investor to remove and replace the general partner in accordance with the terms of the partnership agreement um, without the consent of the lender. Um, I know some lenders push back sometimes, but at a minimum, we need to be able to remove the general partner and replace that general partner with an affiliate of um, the investor. Another big ticket item for investors is um, our ability to be able to transfer uh, the investor interest freely without lender consent. Again, lenders, um, some lenders may push back on this, but at a minimum, we need to have the ability to, be tra to transfer investor interest to affiliates. Um, notice of defaults and opportunity to cure. This is a big one as well. Um, the investor, needs to be able to receive copies of notices of defaults um, sent to the borrower. Um, and we need to be able to cure a default on behalf of the borrower so the borrower doesn't default on a loan. Um, I think Peter mentioned standstill language earlier. And that's, so usually when you have um, an affiliate of the owner that's making a loan directly to the partnership, we always request standstill language, which basically prevents the affiliate of the owner um, from declaring a default uh, under the loan during the tax credit compliance period or as long as the investor is a member in the project, in the partnership. Um, some of the other ones are due on sale clauses. We also um, ask the lender to permit subordinate financing, refinancing, um, debt service coverage maintenance obligations are a big one for us as well. Amendments to the partnership agreement, we always request um, that the lender allow for amendments only for material modifications, um, and then assignment of tax credits, assignment of limited partnership interest, and assignment of capital contributions 
are also terms that we look for in those loan documents. So structuring tax credit investments. So some of the key investor provisions that we look for are noted here. So the tax credit adjusters, um, we always make sure that we have these. So the eligible basis adjuster, uh, which basically adjusts overall amount of investor equity based on credits expected. Then you have your timing adjuster, which adjusts the investor equity for delays. Um, these are very similar to the, the guarantees and the protections available to the lender. For example, we have a construction completion guarantee, which is basically uh, the general partner co uh, covenants and agrees to cause substantial completion and final closing to occur. Um, so this is, again, like Kurt was saying earlier, um, sort of an unlimited guarantee for unforeseen costs um, beyond what was, it, I guess, agreed to at closing. Then you have your operating deficit funding guarantee, which is the guarantor's covenant to provide operating de uh, deficit loans through the completion of construction should an operating deficit occurs. And that gets released um, once the project construction is complete. Again, some of the important provisions that we highlight are the removal of general partner that is heavily negotiated um, in the LPA, in the partnership agreement. You have the removal of the management agent, the repurchase of investor interest. That one gets heavily negotiated in the LOI stages and you continue to negotiate it during the partnership agreement. Then you have your operating and replacement reserves, which um, as discussed, um, I believe uh, Peter touched on these a little bit, but that just references that there are reserves when they're to be funded, where the reserves will be held and what the reserves can be used for. So title and survey, and why do the investors care? So in order to receive uh, tax credits, the project partnership or the company has to own the project. Um, and they must be able to construct on it and or rehabilitate the project. And they have to be able to operate it in compliance with section 42 of the code. So title and survey shows the ownership of the property and any potential uh, ownership or use issues. So I know someone earlier had a question on zoning. So when we're reviewing title and survey, we would make sure that we're in compliance with zoning. For example, a developer may discover during the early stages of trying to get approvals for a project that you can't build a multifamily project on there. So the developer's role would be to get approvals from the city or the county to allow for multifamily housing. So that's done at the very early stages of a project. So once you get to the LOI stages and the investor gets involved and the lender gets involved, we would look for all that to be resolved so the title company can provide us with a zoning endorsement, which is available in the majority, majority of states. Some states don't offer it, but the majority of states do. So our role um, as investors council is to analyze the state of title and survey and identify any encumbrances on title, or anything shown on the survey that would affect um, the partnership's ability to construct the project. Um, at closing, we expect an owner's pro forma and we expect a signed and sealed survey. Uh, investors and lenders have different requirements for a title and survey, but that's something that's, that gets um, negotiated as well during the closing process. 
Um, so why do investors invest in affordable housing? Um, one of the key ones is the tax benefits. The, the tax credits generated through the low-income housing tax credits that can be used by the investor to offset federal income tax liability. Then you have your economic benefits, such as cash flow. Um, you have your asset management fee that you get as an investor in the deal. You also have the social benefits. For example, like Kurt uh, mentioned earlier, the CRA credits. The investor would also, some investors may also get CRA credits for um, investing in an affordable housing project. Um, and then the fact that some projects qualified as green investment is also a social benefit. And finally, the, um, the geographic flexibility, including providing geographic diversification, um, which is also a plus. And that's actually it for me. I'll pass it over to Colette. Thank you.